0: Um, just the, uh, sorry, this is slightly disconcerting because the presentation I normally expect on my laptop, but it's not there, so every time I look there it's kind of, oh god, the laptop's gone. Um, it's great to come here and it's great to be in this room, actually. As soon as I walked in I had a, a great sense of achievement, actually, because the last time I was in this room with Steve, we hadn't even secured the funding for the Future of Cities, so uh, I'm really pleased that we've, we've now got it. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today is just an introduction to uh, to what we've done in ECI and, and what I'm currently doing in Sysenko because that's an important um, background to the work because my work really is participant observation and I'll explain that uh, as I go through. I'll explain what my research method uh, uh, approach is in, in the work and the context for, for that work, what the background is, why am I doing this, what, what's, what's, what's given the... Uh, the driver to, to do this work and then what I'm doing is really case studies and my case studies are markets um, and these are the these are the markets that I'm looking at uh, and then my conclusions are both uh, theoretical cl- conclusions what, what theoretical constructs uh, are, are relevant and, and could be applied here um, but also what policy relevance does this have what are the policy conclusions out of this work. So the context for the research first Uh, A bit of background um, uh, about uh, how we came to this point. Um, ECI, um, Brenda and myself, Brenda was the first person, and I think I was the second person into ECI, into the energy team, um, back in the early 90s. And and ECI has looked um, around the issue of market transformation um, a lot over that time, transforming markets to take into account energy use uh, and carbon emissions. Um, And the latest piece of work on that was transforming the market for buildings building market transformation which that uh, there's um, downloads from the, from the ECI website what I'm doing now is as part of the future of cities program working just one day a week um, within ECI um, and that's why um, uh, my work with Sasenko is important because I'm in Sasenko four days a week and that one day a week um, I started in January and and I've got another uh, just over a year to run some 40% into this uh, piece of work, so it's an ongoing piece of work. Uh, the, the, the conclusions need further, further development and the theoretical analysis needs further work, so very happy for input um, on that. And, and a little bit about Sosenko, which is my four days a week. Um, what I mean by participant observation is that I'm collecting my evidence through interacting with the marketplace. Four days a week. So if you like, I'm evidence collecting four days a week, but actually with my Sosenko hat on, um, and then I'm analysing that that evidence one day a week, with my future of cities and ECI hat on. What do we do in Sosenko? Uh, Sosenko, short for the Sustainable Energy Company. Um, if you Google it, even if you spell it wrongly, you'll still find it, because um, we've bought up all the web space around it, which is which is, which is good. Um, we do two things. We do consultancy. Um, we do, uh, we're developing a portfolio of our own renewables. Um, we've done consultancy at some of the larger landed estates and new build, particularly in schools, um, under the Building Schools for the Future Programme. Um, we're involved quite a lot now in, in, in new build projects um, we're looking at some data centres. Uh, so that's the sort of work we do um, uh, around consultancy. Development um, is very different. What happens here in the consultancy market is that the risk of the project lies with whoever the developer is, and we get we get paid on a consultancy basis to help them carry those risks. With development, we take on the risk. We're developing those that portfolio um, at our own risk. Um, we've got a, a portfolio of uh, PV and wind, particularly that we're developing one or two other te- technologies as well, but those are the two major technologies. Uh, and that portfolio is. Um, if we were to develop it all, it would be about £150 million at the moment. Um, I don't imagine that we will develop it all because there will be issues like, like planning in particular projects that get in the way. So maybe we would deliver half of that. So that's the sort of work we're looking at at the moment. But that's, that's where I'm sitting, if you like. When I'm in front of a customer, i am got my Sosenko hat on, but at the same time um, I'm, underst- I'm, I'm understanding with my Future of Cities and an and ECI hat, what are the issues here in terms of um, the development of new markets and new business models, talking with suppliers, talking with customers, looking, looking at opportunities and then I take that evidence back and one day a week think about it and that's what I'm meaning by um, participating in the market but observing it and in a sense this is the background to participant observation as a, as a, as a research method to, to get a, an intimate familiarity with those people in their own context not in an interview context, in their own context to understand the, the realities that they face day to day and over a period of time because they change. Um, and that's how I'm gathering the evidence, how am I structuring the evidence, I'm structuring it in the form of a series of case studies. And case study is a research, Yin, um, um, or back in 1984, um, did a, 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 what was a very useful uh, um, uh, work on on case study methodology and one that I used in my PhD thesis. So my PhD was by case study. So something that I've done before, um, uh, and 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 find find very useful as a way of understanding uh, particular contexts. The evidence can be uh, various. It can be through interview. It can be quantitative. It can be qualitative. And what you're doing is building up a picture of a particular area from a from a rounded perspective. But but understanding the context that that, that that unit is in. And the unit of the case study that, that I'm looking at is, is particular markets. Um, because markets are an opportunity for change. A market, uh, and it may be a new marketplace, it may be an established marketplace, but it's that market that gets changed by government policy and where there's an opportunity for a new business model to meet a new need or a changed need. So that's the, the research approach. Um, and in terms of understanding the evidence when I collate it, or as I collate it, um, there, there are two, uh, two real drivers in, 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 in how I analyse that. Um, grounded theory is, 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 is again something that, that goes back to my... that I've worked with um, um, since my PhD, uh, grounded, the grounded theory based approach. Um, rather than having a construct and taking the construct out into the marketplace and trying to find the evidence that fits that construct, and going out with a more open mind than that and, and finding theoretical construct, constructs that fit the evidence that I find, I find that a much more satisfactory way around to do research. Um, and it came from, from um, things that, that happened in my PhD. I found, found that. A grounded theory-based approach, much more much more helpful to explain what was actually going on in the marketplace. Um, and in terms of perspectives that inform that, um, there, there are several: uh, innovation theory, um, actor network theory, because it is really I am an actor in a network um, of of a multiple network of multiple actors, um, and um, organisational change because there are existing organisations who may change and spawn new organisations or have new things going on in existing organisations to deliver change. So those are the three areas of change, uh, that, the, of theory, that, uh, that I'm, I'm looking to draw on. Um, the starting point from all of this, though, is, is well, what's, what's changed? Why now? Why is there a sudden interest in, in changed business models? Um, and I would argue that um, that if you like um, one of the things that the last labor government really needs to be credited with is changing the nature of policy making in environment up till that point it was really it was really relatively evolutionary um, uh, things were the same but slightly better um, so for example um, the energy label, which is something that and I first worked on in about 1994 for fridges, Um, this is now for buildings, Um, but once you've ranked the whole marketplace um, at the start there are generally no A's or (coughs) A-pluses, most of the things on the marketplace whether it's fridges or washing machines or cars or houses fall into the lower end and there are things that you can do to move the market, once you've categorised the market, to move the market over a period of time but that's a relatively evolutionary approach. And what happened in, in really over the, over the last few years, um, and I know some people, um, um, Steve included, would, would say that the Climate Change Act is legislating the impossible, the, the, the idea of an 80% reduction by, by 2050. But it set a goal with a series of intermediate measures and and intermediate steps with five-year budgets. And each of the five-year budgets is is by themselves not necessarily Mm -hmm. impossible. Um, And and it it, it set a process of policy being goal-oriented. So um, building regulations, for example, aimed at zero carbon new build. Now, again, zero carbon new build is probably like 80% reduction in 2050. It's probably as an it's probably great as an aspiration, but horrific as a target. It's, but, but the process of policymaking was changing to become outcome-oriented, rather than, and I would argue, revolutionary, rather than evolutionary. People didn't know how you would get zero-carbon homes. And until a few years ago, that would always been a reason for not having them. Um, now, we set zero-carbon homes as a, as a policy objective, And we work out how we get there, and that's a transformation in the way that policy policy is being made, and what supports that is a series of detailed measures, like market transformation, um, the label, minimum efficiency standards, incentives to get up to the top level, uh, to to bring that transformation about. So that that's that's the that's what's causing a I think a shift. we did a piece of work uh, between, t- between uh, 2004 and 2008 looking at how you would get to a very low carbon building stock. This is part of the um, Building Market Transformation Programme. And um, this was one scenario that we did, actually, it's one scenario that we did for the Royal Commission about how uh, energy use might change in homes over a period of time, starting uh, uh, in, two th- in 2000 with, um, this is, uh, um, normally it's not good to put kilowatt hours of gas and kilowatt hours of electricity on the same axis, but this is to illustrate not kilowatt hours, it's to illustrate change, so forgive me. Um, This is gas use, this is electricity use, and this is other fuel use. And what we were looking at was a scenario the particular numbers really don't matter, it is not a prediction, it's an illustration. And the numbers could be anywhere around there. The point is that over a period of time, we are expecting that gas use that's used in heat-only devices would fall. Gas use in uh, combined heat and power uh, might, might begin to take over, so you're using that gas more efficiently. And the electricity that's provided to dwellings might not just come from the grid, it might come from a whole host of other sources. Now, really, the detailed numbers behind that could be anything. I don't care what they are. I'm not interested in the numbers, I'm illustrated in the picture of change. If that or anything like that future came about, then the current organisation that we have for getting electricity from a power station to your home would fundamentally alter. Because you're not talking about demanding power from the grid anymore, you're talking about demanding it from devices that may be local to your community or on your house. If this picture of gas use changed, the way that we sell gas um, would, would fundamentally change as well. So at some point, and I don't, again, I don't, I'm not predicting when or how, at some point between there and 2050, there will be a restructuring of the industry. That's a bifurcation in the marketplace. And that's what I'm interested in. Because that is uh, an opportunity for a new business model. And uh, that's the the focus of my interest, my passion, if you like, in the business, but the research as well. And if you like, what that is, if if you take a Darwinian approach to technical change using a theoretical model, that's a change in the survival conditions of species, the species in this case being the company, a fundamental change in the survival conditions. So that species which did not, have a, an, a, 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 did not flourish before now have an advantage they no longer had, that they didn't have before, sorry. And species which did have an advantage, like British gas, big flourishing species, don't necessarily have the advantage that they enjoyed previously. And like the dinosaurs, they may die out. So it was, that, it was the nature of that change in the survival conditions that, that I'm particularly interested in. And also that the thought that to get from here to here it's actually not a technical problem. We know about PV or uh, solar thermal or micro CHP. It's not a technical issue. It is an issue about how we understand markets and how we get very high uptake of technologies we already know about. A lot of people classifying this issue as a technical problem. (coughs) I don't think it is. I think it's a... It's a it's a it's a changing the rules of the markets problem, and it's a how does business respond problem. So that's the that's the background to the uh, the, uh, the the thought process. And what I think we're seeing now is in response to these sets of drivers: renewable energy, uh, renewable obligation certificates, feed-in tariffs, renewable heat incentive, carbon reduction commitments, uh, emissions trading, climate change levy, and, and so on. Um, we are, we are seeing society organising itself differently. Um, and if you like, if you have government as as, as one corner of society, civil society, um, local organisations um, as as another corner, and the private sector as, as potentially a third corner, you could argue about the structure of that. But what I, what, what what we're seeing is is new kinds of relationships so um, industrial and providence societies, community interest companies and cooperatives actually putting civil society into new forms of organisation to deliver projects. Um, and we're seeing um, agents, um, so banks uh, uh, or, or private sector investors, um, particular individuals in communities or particular individuals in, in, in local government, um, being the cause of change um, within those organizations so we, we're seeing new organizational structures I think in response to that in in, in response to those thats that, that soci- societal level level set of drivers so now I want to go through a series of case studies that, that illustrate uh, the kinds of changes that I'm looking at um, now these are the case studies that I'm looking at information the commercial uh, the commercial marketplace for commercial property Um what might flow from this thing called the New Green Deal, which nobody seems to know much about, but government wants to put in legislation in a few weeks' time? Um, how the public sector uh, is, is taking on this agenda uh, and reacting to it? Uh, what's happening in particular communities and also genuinely new new business startups? So those are the sorts of case studies that I'm looking at as microcosms of this general phenomenon. Uh, Information as an enabler. At the moment, the energy market is incredibly poor in terms of information. The energy companies uh, only have an obligation to to take your meter readings and tell you what you've used um, at least once every two years. Um, And that situation is changing and will need to change because that information becomes valuable for managing either... Your home, you, you choosing to manage your home differently, um, you managing an asset differently on your home, which might generate power, um, and even in managing the whole network differently. Um, that might, and, and, and that whole process of meters being able to communicate is uh, that, that smart meter contact uh, is, is, is described generally as, as smart metering. Interestingly, that in the very large, say, very large, 100 kilowatts, so reasonably large market upwards, um, automatic meter reading is is the norm uh, and so the energy companies know what's going on in any half-hour period in larger loads. Smaller loads than that they, they just haven't a clue. Um, and the, the, okay, this is something that's really driven by uh, uh, legislation um, at the European level uh, and the UK is, is rolling out uh, a uh, a programme to uh, to install smart meters, 47 million meters in 26 million households. Um, so that's a new market. Um, it's a market which will emerge uh, gradually over that period to 2020. Um, and you might think, well, that's kind of sewn up. That meter companies are going to have that market. It's just a new meter, um, and the energy companies are going to have that market because they're the one that does. that that, that know that marketplace. But actually, I don't think it's as simple as that. I think there are other companies out there who know about managing information flows and communication flows, whether they're broadband companies or mobile phone companies, who are looking at that market and thinking that's a huge opportunity for us to change. So uh, change our business and change from being a the mobile phone market really is becoming a, a utility market it's, it's really becoming something where price prices everything and, and margins are squashed and a lot of those providers are looking to innovate. They've, they've made their money as being innovative companies. They happen to be in mobile phone, phone communications um, and now they're saying we want to be an innovative company not a utility company. So what can we do in this new marketplace To uh, to create a a new market opportunity and have as our 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 unique uh, USP, if you like, that they understand information flows and actually it's information flows, not meters. That's the 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 issue here. So that's a a, a very new market, and and I have to say that's a that's a market which uh, at the moment is so new that I'm just watching how it develops. But it will be it it could be a case study written over ten years. This one to 2020. So, um, in terms of outcomes and conclusions from that market, that there are few yet. I have to say the rollout plan still out to consultation. The second case study uh, that I'm interested in is the commercial leasehold relationship, uh, and uh, this is interesting because in, in, in commercial, in, in in the commercial world, in in, in large buildings. Um, something like two-thirds of the building stock is not owned by the person that occupies it. It's leased and that leasehold relationship really goes back, that relationship between landlord and tenant, goes back hundreds of years and the regulatory framework surrounding is very, very light touch because government takes the view that a leasehold relationship between two commercial organisations is one that is entered into willingly and because they're commercial organisations, in the full knowledge of the consequences. So government is very unwilling to to intervene in this very ancient marketplace, if you like, between landlord and tenant. Um, And and that is a marketplace, if you like, almost waiting to fracture because of the regulation and the drivers that are coming about because of low-carbon and the spaces I'm talking about are typically offices, retail and warehousing. Um, And Doing something about a a, a commercial commercial property obviously requires action by the landlord in some instances and action by the tenant in others and depending on the precise terms of the lease it can actually be very unclear about who is required to act in particular circumstances and what a tenant is able to do in certain circumstances um, and what the landlord would regard as an alteration too far that they would want to correct at the end of the tenancy. So for example, um, putting in insulation or replacing the windows might be regarded as something that, that actually is, is a material alteration to the fabric and, and the landlord might not be particularly happy about that. Um, and might want to replace them at the end of the tenancy and the, the the tenant is therefore in a very difficult position about whether they can alter certain elements of fabric so it's a it's a it's a very challenging um, uh, relationship one of the interesting things that's happening is that uh, there's a potentially a, a third party to that relationship which is a, either a facilities manager or a, or a, 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 a an energy services uh, company who could come in and do things off the balance sheet of either the landlord or of the tenant if the contract structure can be uh, can be got in place. The opportunities are around uh, fabric improvement, the, the, the actual shell itself, um, around kit that's installed within the shell, electricity consuming kit and particularly uh, ICT because energy consumption in ICT is just the fastest growing source of emissions um, and, and then energy supply technologies that could deliver lower carbon uh, uh, forms of energy um, and um, the, the, the issues that, that I've come across to date in, 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 this, in this marketplace um, are things like it's, it's very much easier to, 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 uh, to finance um, energy supply measures than it is um, energy efficiency measures. And, and the reason for that is that quite often the energy supply is confined to a particular portion of the building around which a third party can take a lease. But they can't take a lease around the whole building because the tenants already got that lease. And, and you need that lease for the, for the bank lender who, or the finance provider to be sure that if it all falls apart, they can get their kit back. So um, refurbishing the lighting system, for example, um, or the cooling system, in a building like this on a third party basis would be enormously difficult because how does the bank get the lights back if, if it all goes wrong. If you've got an energy centre where they've got um, a, f- a physical means of access to that energy centre and there's their, the, plant, the plant room and if it all goes wrong they can get the plant out, that's fine. So it, it is, it's very difficult to, to finance um, this kind of kit replacement Again, does the tenant do it or does the landlord do it? It's a very difficult. It's a very difficult problem, but cracking that problem is something that we've got to do in order to get anywhere near the kind of targets that, that have been talked about. Um, there are offerings in this marketplace from a number of organisations uh, listed there. It is a it is a growing market, it's, but it's a, again it's a very early stage market. I think there there are there are there's a there's a lot to go in, in, in terms of uh, uh, this marketplace as a, as a as a as a commercial opportunity financing financing things off balance sheet. A um, couple of other supply technologies now um, and I probably ought to uh, move on a little bit more quickly. Um, the PV market is a really exciting one and could grow five to thirty times over the next few years. Um, and there are particular opportunities in in, in the built space on roof space, but again, who owns the roof? We've, we've had situations where we've been trying to work with our own lawyers who have a full, full repairing lease over the whole of their structure. On the other hand, we would want a 25-year lease to put the panels on, and the lawyers only have a 20-year lease, so they can't give us a 25-year lease. So they would ha- or sublease for the roof, so they would have to lease back the roof space, take it out of their commercial lease, give it back to the landlord, so that the landlord could have a lease with us. Um, but then the landlord doesn't necessarily want to do that because they inherit all sorts of other liabilities in taking the roof structure back in terms of making it watertight and what happens if we, we penetrate it and damage the roof structure and so on. So it is not straightforward in terms of getting that kind of uh, uh, lease in place. And, and Hammersons have found this, they, they wanted to actually tender out the whole of their shopping centre portfolio. Um, then realised that they'd given away all of their roofs in, in 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 their lease structures, and they didn't have the right to put PV on those roofs because the tenants had full repairing leases. Um, and then in the end, found one shopping centre where by accident they happened to retain the uh, full the the, the 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 responsibility for the roof space. They could use that as a case study, and they could then work with their tenants to persuade them that they've done it on their roof space. It would be a great idea. Look how much publicity it's got. Look how much carbon is saved what the income benefits are and so on. Wouldn't it be a good idea if everybody else in the portfolio did it, but you know, it is, it is not, it is not straightforward. The other area is um, large ground mounted systems, which tend not to be in city centres, except possibly in car parks and car parks are a great space for PV, car park roofs. Um, um, so we're, we're looking at installations of between five and 35 acres and we have probably nearly 200 acres of PV that we're looking at developing at the moment. Michael, I'm sorry, <laughs> what is PV? Sorry, photovoltaics, okay. um, generate electricity from sunlight. Um, wind is is, a, is another uh, technology that um, in this commercial marketplace could find a uh, an opportunity uh, that uh, thus far it hasn't. You think of wind farms as being... Um, you know, things on hillsides, but actually sites next to uh, industrial landscapes, um, uh, the, the uh, Green Park in, in Reading, um, right next to the M4. Um, we've got a site uh, up near the, M, uh, near the M6 that we're developing uh, with three 2-megawatt turbines. Um, uh, we've got several food factories and a number of distribution centres that we're looking at at the moment, but it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity. Um, and actually again for time I won't go into this but um, we're looking at uh, for one distribution company that has 70 sites in the UK whether they should do wind or PV and actually very strongly and very clearly the answer is wind not PV. They only own half their store, their, their properties so we've looked at the, the half they own and the half of those that are in the south and then the half of that roof space that's available to put PV on it and then the impact on their operations of actually doing the installation and then that's only 2.5% of their carbon, even after all that hassle. Um, if we can find five of those 70 sites, we could put a one and a half megawatt turbine up, we can generate 10% of, We can generate electricity, which is equivalent to 10% of their carbon emissions. Um, and we can do it all off balance sheet. It might not even be on their land. It could be on their neighbor's land. So, um, and which in terms of leases and so on is just a whole bunch easier. And I've put this image up because um, those turbines don't exist yet. This is a photo montage of our first site, which I know it doesn't look like an industrial landscape, but it is a field next to an industrial site and the, the two turbines, that's three megawatts between them, um, four million pounds of investment, selling electricity straight into the, into the, into the factory. Um, and I'm going to be so excited when they go up, <laughs> I think I'm going to be unbearable for a month. <laughs> Um, Right, the third case study, and I do need to move on, um, is the Green Deal market. Um, The government's been talking about the Green Deal as, and the only detail that's available really is that energy efficiency both for owners and for tenants is very important, both residential and commercial buildings, and the aim is to find a way of paying for the savings, paying for the install from the savings that are made, and we are to expect legislation in the next session. Um, there's been no consultation process, (coughs) there's been no uh, detail about the levels of of money available and I suspect they're not going to be enough because I think they're talking about, at least the Conservatives prior to the election were talking about something like £6,000 a dwelling and from the work that we've done we think it's Mm -hmm. going to take more like £20,000 a dwelling to do a decent job and that's the difficulty, they couldn't fund that at the moment so what's going to happen is that this market of refurbishing homes is going to have to be one that we do the simple measures now and then we go around and do another iteration later on, and so on. Um, and it, the it's a very valuable market over the next few years if we are to refurbish to the levels that we think are needed. Um, and obviously there are people wanting to play in that market Um, and the potential participants obviously the energy companies but I just don't think the energy companies have got the wit to deliver this to be honest, Um, they're too tied to, sorry I can't spell existing I've just noticed, too tied to existing revenue models, Um, they don't have the capacity to innovate, Uh, nobody would sign off innovation, they're very very um, uh, uh, conservative organisations. Um, Retailers are a possibility. Um, data companies, I've already mentioned, as, as, as participants in the, in the metering market, and from metering into this is an obvious step. Um, and infrastructure and delivery companies, um, uh, put down Carillion, but you could add um, people like Mighty Facilities Management, l- large facilities management players, you could add down there. None of those companies individually could do this, because this is a very complicated offer to actually put together. Um, in terms of what is it that people are buying and um, how is it financed and, and how, how might it actually be delivered because there isn't anybody that delivers whole house refurbishment at the moment. There are people that do cavity wall insulation, there are people that do loft insulation, people that do boilers. You might actually have a whole bunch of, actual, of service providers um, to, to bring together to, to deliver this, 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 uh, this, this service. Right, fourth case study is is really the public sector because the public sector makes decisions in a completely different way to the private sector or to households. Um, The particular area that I'm working in in, in, um, with Sanco is building schools for the future. And um, there there are two models for procurement here uh, in in BSF. This is old style BSF, what Michael Gove comes out with in January, February, March, when BSF gets launched, we understand, relaunched, we understand, probably won't be called BSF that would be too politically uh, difficult. But whatever comes out, whatever Gove comes out with a a new look BSF will be different. Um, But uh, uh, BSF to date, there have been two models of procurement, one which is a design and build contract where a private company builds it, hands it over to the local authority, the local authority then takes it over and runs it. And one where um, contractors have a 25-year contract to design, build, finance, operate and maintain uh, a school. And this latter route has a really demanding carbon target in it. I mean, really demanding, really quite challenging. Um, And and most of the providers aren't hitting it. Um, And that's a whole other story in itself, not not to go into now, but it is a really challenging issue. But the design and build schools have no other target other than building regs. And it's just insane, in my mind, to have a really challenging target here and bugger all target there excuse my French and um, be spending a lot of money to deliver a very challenging target and not be spending anything at all over here. Um, it would be much better to have a more equal playing field, more equal set of targets um, that are higher than current targets um, but perhaps less of a stretch than, than the current targets that the schools have. Uh, and that, and they. Some of the solutions that are um, being being installed very, very badly um, and therefore going wrong and, and it 's quite evident that the that the industry that 's building schools does not understand a lot of the technologies and there are major construction companies or, or major consulting companies um, that are doing this and making these mistakes um, so biomass is completely oversized and runs a couple of hours a day and then jams up and people why why it goes wrong. But biomass needs to be sized very, very differently to conventional technologies. So, um, you know, there's a problem there. And some of the technologies that people are installing, pure plant oil-based combined heat and power, so it's combined heat and power running off pressed rapeseed oil, and that kind of, that generates all sorts of problems and you really do wonder about the sustainability of that solution um so uh there's some it 's it's, it's an interesting uh, an, a, an interesting case study as to why they arrived at the decisions they did uh, and where they go next uh, An illustration of this is work we 've done at um, one of the schools, south Shields where um, um, unfortunately I think for lack of time i 'm not going to have it go into this, but this is a life cycle cost graph um with a number of solutions that we've looked at um, on a life cycle cost basis and this anything below zero is a negative cost so um, the, the the kit has a certain cost to install and then a certain cost over time to run it whether it's fuel or maintenance or or income from generation of power or whatever and then over time you, you look at at, uh, at what the net present value of that investment is and, and a lot of those investments have a very very negative net present value and are more expensive than conventional solutions and actually, some solutions are better than conventional solutions and what 's important here is the changed frame of reference, if you like, which is which is um, moving from a first cost basis for decision making to a life cycle cost over twenty five years basis for decision making and, and actually to be fair to um, the PFI process um, it is delivering um, at least people are looking at life cycle costing and life cycle costing in carbon terms has to be the right way forward. That's right, new models of organisations the fifth case study one more after this communities and we have two representatives of low carbon West Oxford in the room um, um, and I'm a shareholder in low carbon West Oxford and if you're not you should be. <laughs> um, they can explain it better than I, but um, West Oxford Community Renewables, um, there's two parts to it. Um, there's, there's the community group, if you like, and the, and the renewables group, which is um, structured as, a, as an industrial and providence society to invest in and run a portfolio of renewables. And the benefits, the income from that goes back into investing in energy efficiency projects in the community. Um, it's a leader, but there are lots of others following. Um, all sorts, all, all over the place, um, North Oxford and Kirtlington and all over the all over the area, and and in fact all over the all over the country. Um, another model for development of uh, community renewables, if you like, is is Energy for All, um, which developed the Westmill wind farm, which is a six and a half megawatt um, wind farm over towards Swindon, and Energy for All have developed a whole series of wind farms across the, the UK. Um, owned on a cooperative model, or um, seeking investment from the communities that they are in, which is a great model, I think, for developing wind going forward. Uh, the final case study that I'm looking at is 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 uh, brand new business models, um, and uh, uh, David referred earlier on to my involvement in Two Degrees. I was involved in Two Degrees in the very early stages. Uh, of, of getting it up and running um, what it does for those people who haven't seen it it is a it's, they now hate the term it's a, it's a, it's a social network uses social networking technology if you like to build a network of practitioners um, who uh, are out in, in business needing to find solutions and deliver them in their business to move their business from where they are to low carbon and there's about 10,000 members on 2Degrees now. It's, about, it's just got second-round run, second funding to launch in the US, so that'll probably double in the next few months. Um, and there are specific networks. What's different around this, this, this as, a, as a network is that the, the networks are not accidental, they're very managed and focused around, um, uh, around particular issues. And there is a network around Smart Cities, which is sponsored by Cisco so it, I suggest that there's somebody that Steve we need to go and talk to um, but um <laughs> um but I know that that's happening already, so that's okay um uh, but there's sort of, i mean one of, one of the things that's great about the network is that they run webinars it's very easy to hold something like this online um you can do it in a lunch hour or you can do it you know in in, in, an, in an afternoon you know an an hour at a time you can log in online um, and the presentation can be there online, that means that it's very easy to to, to get in, involved in particular issues, get access to information, get contacts that you wouldn't normally be able to, um, to access and to go to a whole day, take a day to go for example to learn about carbon reduction commitment is a big thing, but if you can go online for an hour, um, learn something useful. Not only that, learn who to talk to next um, and what you need to do next. And then maybe two months later, come back when you've done some work um, uh, implementing your CRC responsibilities in your organisation and then learn some more. It's a very, very effective way of learning. Um, and there are also, I mean, I would have been on the, the new Green Finance Instruments for Cities seminar this afternoon, but I'm here instead. Um, and there are some other interesting. Uh, uh, sessions going on in in future months. Um, But I think it's an an area that we can think about about uh, how we can interact with decision makers uh, and, if you like, uh, expand the reach of the program into the commercial world. Um, We've paralleled that. We've taken the same software platform from Two Degrees, taken out all the content because it's all designed for a business audience, changed the business model and relaunched it for communities, so it's a communities-to-communities network now. It's very new. Um, it's not the only community-to-communities network obviously because there are transition towns and low-carbon communities network and so on but they're a little bit hair-shirt and a lot of people, a lot, if you like, the mainstream of society don't take the innovators as their model for what they do themselves and so we think there's a great opportunity for a network which is like two degrees, but aimed at communities to, to, to have an impact. So those are the five markets, the five, if you like, case studies that I'm looking at um, and uh, I'm just I'm looking now at what can be drawn as conclusions from uh, uh, comparing and contrasting and looking at those those markets. And really the main if you like the, the main, the, the common threads out of these five case studies are really around what causes them. Is there a requirement or is there the money? And how do they happen? Who who takes responsibility for delivering? So, if you take information as an enabler, the the, the smart meters case study, the market quite clearly needs creating, and the. The way that that's happening is through an obligation on the energy suppliers to install those meters. That's not to say that they will do all the work, it may be that the communications company actually do the delivery, but there has to be a market created and there has to be an obligation to do that market. Because whilst it's in everybody's interests for smart meters to happen, um, there are a lot of issues about getting that market to happen Uh, that if it was left to the market itself it would either not happen or would happen chaotically things like common communication protocols so that people can switch suppliers or switch meters and it will still work Um, so that's why the obligation is so important and why the protocols need to be developed if you like at a policy level Um, commercial the commercial leasehold concept what made it happen? Well, it was kind of there already, but the feed and tariffs has not often given it a kick at the backside um, as a market that's developing. What needs to happen in organisational terms? Well, that leasehold relationship is changing quite a lot, and that's something that elsewhere I've written about, so I won't go into detail here. The new Green Deal. The common element there is, again, how is it going to be financed? Who's causing it? And that's legislation. Um, the organisational relationship issues to deliver, it it is a complicated offer to go and refurbish the 25, 26 million homes that we have. There is not one organisation that can do that and that will require new partnerships to to deliver that. Um, Public sector decisions, uh, schools and so on. Well, the finance there was Uh, the the delivery rather was through private providers but it was a requirement of their contract in in the PFI process and there was additional money on the table to do that so there was finance there, it was about 110 million to do schools and the organisational relationship issues, there was a contract in place that says what has to be achieved and what the consequences of not achieving that target are and the penalties are quite, quite severe in the community space, it is going to take new mechanisms to to finance it and um, and some of those have been demonstrated locally through um, industrial and provincial societies and through shareholder offerings and so on, but it didn't happen on its own, it took quite a lot of government support to get that to happen, at least in the first instance and if it doesn't take government support it's going to take bank support. So there again, there's a new structure and new, new new, new new finance routes and New business startups, well actually to be honest it was very hard to fill these boxes when I was writing this presentation because there ain't nothing other than Carbon Trust support and Carbon Trust are obsessed with technology they will only support, the first question if you want to go to Carbon Trust to start up a business they say what's your IP? What's your intellectual property? What can you protect? If it's just a new service delivery model they are not interested so that is an area where actually I think there's a great Gap uh, and, a, and a great need, actually. So, as I say, I've done a lot of work in putting the evidence together, but the theoretical work is, 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 is to, 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 to do some explaining and so on about what's happening in here, what could happen better based on the theoretical work, uh, uh, literature is still very much in progress. Um, I've talked about an evolutionary approach to technical change, and that's one that I'm very Uh, keen on. But one thing we need to understand from the case studies is that each of these markets is very different. The pre-existing relationships in those markets, if you like, between landlord and tenant or between local authority and schools, is very different and so what works in each of those pre-existing relationships uh, is very different. And if you like, each market is an ecosystem, which is why my unit of study is a market, um, rather than something smaller and more manageable like a company. Um, An actor network theory, I think, and, and, and particularly uh, a relatively new development in that situational analysis. Understanding how people relate to each other and how organisations relate to each other is something that I think will will help shed light on some of the relationships and some of the markets that I'm, I'm observing. Um, finally, the policy conclusions. I think this pretty much is uh, the final slide. Um, the change from evolutionary policy where costs and benefits are known to transformational policy um, which is target based without any visible means of delivery at the present time is, is a very challenging one um, and I think it will cause and has caused quite quite disruptive change. Um, I would also argue that in terms of innovation policy, that it, uh, as I say, w- with regard to carbon trust it's very technology focused. Um, but the solutions that we need, as I said in one of the very early slides, we have available to us and we understand. What we need to understand is how we get very, very large uh, take-up of of technologies we know about, and that really is service innovation. There is no support for service innovation in the UK, uh, and that's something that that we need to focus on. I think actually also a a conclusion, uh, and this is perhaps not so much from this work, but from previous work, big firms like British Gas and so on, i um, not singling out British Gas, sorry, energy suppliers, if you like, are risk averse. And, and actually, future service models may lie in businesses or partnerships, which don't exist, or at least don't necessarily exist in this space. So they might be large infrastructure providers, but not necessarily low carbon infrastructure providers. And, and that actually is a very difficult issue for policy policy over the last 15 years has been very consultative. How the hell do you consult with somebody who doesn't exist? Or doesn't exist in that market? So that's a problem for government. I recognise it's a problem for government, but the problem is that government doesn't recognise as a problem for government. And that needs to change. Um, and the final question really is, what works? Um, and, and this is something that I want to go through with, with, with each of the, the case studies what works by by work, I mean emissions reductions, Uh, what makes energy more secure as well as low carbon, what is the cost and and importantly what's the cost to whom, Um, how easily can they be scaled, Uh, how many communities could do what West Oxford has done with low carbon West Oxford, Uh, and how quickly could it work and those are some of the references, i have just put them in there. Uh, for completeness. won't go through them now, but they're for you to browse through afterwards. And that's where I'm up to. Well, well thank you very much indeed, Mark. Thank you.